This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we break down for you the important issues confronting America today. This week on our special St. Patrick's Day edition, we'd like to wish all the 32 million Americans who uh, connect with the Irish ancestry a happy holiday. And we will discuss the politics of Ireland with our guest, Colm Martin former executive director of the Irish Institute at Boston College. Gail Milifatsch and a thousand Irish welcomes to you, my friend. How are you? Thanks, Jerry. I'm doing great. Uh, it, it always amazes me and delights me to see Irish Americans who know more about Ireland, are more immersed and joyful about the Irish experience than the Irish themselves. But sure, isn't that always the way? And yes. Both of us yes. worked for Martin O'Malley, who... I've been to Ireland many times with Martin O'Malley, and I've always been amazed that he knows more about Ireland than I do. Yes, isn't that true? I mean, I grew up in Philly, like right down the road from the Independence Hall, and I can't, I can't tell you the times I've been there. But anyway, you're right. So the politics of Ireland, and particularly Northern Ireland, has changed dramatically in the last 25 years. As you know, prior to the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Northern Ireland was locked in a civil bloody war that killed over 3,000 people between Catholics seeking independence from Great Britain, wanting to join the independent republic in the south of Ireland, and the Royalists wanting to remain in the United Kingdom. What's the current state of affairs in the country right now? Well, you know, Jerry, I'd also I'd just remind you that of the uh, for our American friends, there's just a tremendous American connection to that whole story in that let, let me even go back a little further and say you could imagine Frederick Douglass came to Ireland and when he was there he met the great Daniel O'Connell. Daniel O'Connell preached nonviolence as a way to create a mass movement of folks who could move the needle in a way that revolutions had failed to move the needle in Ireland for Catholic emancipation. And he was successful. Frederick Douglass went back to the United States and he preached a nonviolent movement that was successful. Uh, and Frederick Douglass influenced Martin Luther King. And of course, Martin Luther King was the primary influence on the Northern Ireland civil rights organization that uh, in an equivalent uh, bridge marching uh, to mirror that which happened in, uh, in the United States, uh, Irish Catholics marched in Northern Ireland for access to jobs, housing, and equal access to education. And so while it is sometimes portrayed as a, a, a hard to understand uh, religious conflict, it's, it's an easy to understand uh, majority inflicting discrimination on a minority and things went along fine until inspired by Martin Luther King, who was inspired by Frederick Douglass, who was inspired by Daniel O'Connell, they simply asked for a fair deal. And they were met with a, a bloody and violent response, just like in the United States. And that led in turn to a prolonged conflict 
which was eventually resolved in no smart part, in no small part, because of the intervention of the United States. And uh, many of the well-known Irish Americans had a hand to play in that, including, of course, Ted Kennedy, whose sister, Jean Kennedy Smith, was the ambassador to Ireland, who advocated strongly to President Clinton that Jerry Adams be allowed to come to the United States and to uh, press Irish-American supporters of the Republican movement to allow a peace process to unfold. And uh, Jerry Adams uh, laid out a future and a vision for how that would benefit everybody in Northern Ireland. And that happened. And uh, we have to acknowledge that with some ups and downs and bumps along the way, that it has been hugely successful in stopping the violence and enabling economic development and enabling both sides in Northern Ireland to actually uh, get along and prosper in the most important way, which is to make sure your neighbor has a job and that the smaller spoils are not being fought over by a, a starving people. And so we have to declare it a success. I'm glad you made that connection and going back to Dan O'Connell, because I remember reading about Frederick Douglass going there and his fascination with the country. And you mentioned Jerry Adams, and he was very much a big part of the um, the peace agreement. And again, Clinton allowing him to come over and raise funds for Sinn Féin, which is the polit- his political party. And one of the things that was uh, fascinating about Adams is that, you know, he was in Longkesh prison. He had been someone had tried to they had tried to assassinate him and he had long been accused of being you know ahead of the ira irish republican army but he kind of had a conversion in the early 80s where he realized that you know the the in the people that wanted independence should do it through the ballot and not the bullet and he really took and i guess it was like 16 17 years and he really brought that about and played a critical role in doing that and you and i we talked a little bit about the book say nothing which which i thought was a great book on the history of kind of going from 69 on and um you know, the author there said that Jerry Adams may be the guy who eventually brings a united Ireland because Sinn Féin's popularity there and their, their electoral success. That last year they had the greatest electoral success uh, in a century over in Ireland. And um, do, do you see that? Do you see Adams being that kind of a historical figure? I really do. I mean, Ireland, of course, has a long history of the the revolutionary turning to the ballot box to achieve its goals. And as you know, Jerry, uh, from your look at Irish history, uh, people like De Valera and Michael Collins, they were the ones who, uh, after fighting in the trenches, declared we have to um, move forward now uh, through the ballot box in order to kind of bring the revolution to an end. Only the revolutionary can actually speak to the to the gunmen who have moved the ball down the field and say, now it's time for us to look to the future. And uh, I think Adams has been really, really masterful over the years in how he has brought people along with him, not bullied or or, uh, threatened, but he had to bring people along. And that's why that American um, visit was so crucial to make sure that the supporters of the uh, IRA in the United States understood that these were important steps along the way to achieving the ultimate goal. And so he he moved from the Armalite to the Armalite and the ballot box as an as a as a um, strategy, and then ultimately to the ballot box. And uh, 
You know, I think the United Ireland piece of it is is a little complex in that there are many Catholics in Northern Ireland maybe who want a successful, possibly independent Northern Ireland or a Northern Ireland that is um, in some way connected to both uh, uh, Britain and Ireland. And, and, and so this, the long-term solution is not 100% clear, but I think most people in Northern Ireland really were driven by an end to discrimination. And having a country that's treating them more fairly and allowing them access to education, jobs and housing uh, limits in some ways the immediacy of needing to change the constitutionality of the state. And so in many ways, the lives of the people who were pushing for that uh, uh, change has been improved to the point where that is a luxury, not a necessity. And so I do think that there will be a change in the constitutional status, but it may not be as easy uh, uh, to, to, to see as from a purely part of the United Kingdom to 100% uh, part of a united Ireland with a capital in Dublin and a parliament in Dublin. It may be an, There may be interim steps along the way, or maybe there will just be a um, a semi-independent Northern Ireland that is associated with both both countries. Adam deserve all the credit, I think, on the nationalist side. And of course, there were a couple of people on the on the uh, unionist side who helped along the way. You know, Trimble was okay. Ian Paisley was the Nixon goes to China version of Adams on the unionist side, who uh, could not be declared a sellout, and was the one who was able to say, "I'll actually sit down." in a Northern Ireland Parliament with Martin McGuinness, another unsung hero uh, uh, internationally, but but given a tremendous amount of credit in Northern Ireland and in Ireland uh, for his uh, willingness to make uh, constitutional politics really work for nationalists in Northern Ireland. So lots of heroes, but I think Adams is a genuinely unique figure in uh, in modern Irish history. A bit like De Valera Collins in his day, but he, he accomplished... A lot with a very tough crowd, Jerry, as you'll understand. Yes. That's a tough crowd <laughs> to navigate. And uh, he did it very well. And he's still around today. And, uh, uh, you know, I think a, a, a quirky figure. A, you, you mentioned that accused of being head of the IRA. Yeah. You know, he, he, he has some uh, controversial aspects to him. One of them, one is a difficult one to understand. There seems to be tremendous amount of irrefutable evidence that Adams was actually the... the uh, chief of staff of the IRA, and yet, for some reason, he has always denied it, and the point of his denial has kind of become secondary to the strangeness of the denial, and uh, uh, most people have kind of moved on from that. Uh, it, it's a somewhat semantic issue, but it it's, goes to the heart that he's a bit of a quirky character, And um, but I, I think the essential component in making it all work. And you hit it on the head when you talked about the economic impact of the of the the end of the the conflict, and that was that um, Northern Ireland, Ireland have just taken off, just took off economically after that, and we're now talking about Brexit, the British government 
uh, United Kingdom severing itself from the European Union and the impact that that's going to have on Ireland. And there were people in Ireland uh, who were very upset because it may mean a return of checkpoints at the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, which kind of goes back to the vestiges of that time when the British Army so um, visibly occupied Northern Ireland. Um, and right now, I think the, 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 the checkpoints are just at the ports as they're coming in. What, what do you see is happening in that situation? Are we going to see those checkpoints at the border? Oh, we can't. Yeah. Uh, international law. The Good Friday Agreement is an international uh, law uh, verified by uh, the international community that Britain signed on to. And so you cannot actually um, impose a border between North and South. It's part of that agreement. Uh, what it exposed in many ways, though, the conversation around that um, uh, Brexit and Northern Ireland was how little the British government in London thinks about Northern Ireland. It, it, it entered into a Brexit process without acknowledging or understanding the constitutional and international agreements about a, a piece of their country. They, um, they moved forward in a way that put them into a, a very strange catch-22 border-wise, and, and partly because when Brexit passed in Britain in the parliament, the ruling Conservative Party needed the support of the unionists who sit in parliament in London from Northern Ireland. And therefore, the unionists put in a number of conflicting provisions that ultimately made it very, very difficult for Britain, to, the London government, to understand how, where exactly they're going to put this border. They are precluded from having a border between North and South by the Good Friday Agreement. And yet the unionists in Northern Ireland said, you cannot put a border between one part of Britain, of the United Kingdom and the other, between Britain and Northern Ireland, or you're putting a border between us, British citizens, and the other British citizens. So Britain has really struggled. Uh, the London government has really struggled to navigate this because they paid so little attention to the citizens of the United Kingdom that lived in Northern Ireland. They, they moved forward. Uh, Britain has always gotten itself tied up in problems in Ireland and Northern Ireland because of, as much because of neglect as, as because of malicious intent. And, it, and, and that in itself is, is reprehensible. And so there will be no border between North and South. It is not, it is not legal. Um, but also the United, the, the Brussels um, European Union also says you have to have some customs union between a non-European Union country and a European Union country, which is Ireland. So it's a very difficult situation that the British have not navigated well and it's hold, it has held up more than any other issue. It has held up Britain's easy withdrawal from uh, the European Union. Never going to be an easy task, but it made it even more difficult. It points to the neglect and uh, how little time and energy uh, the London government spends thinking about Northern Ireland, which is in itself, I think, eye-opening for a lot of people in Northern Ireland. But the, the economic takeoff, I mean, I remember not too long after the peace accord was the uh, the Celtic Tiger, the whole IT companies investing in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And what was the economic status over there right now, Colin? Actually, you know, um, Ireland, uh, uh, nor uh, I'm sorry, Northern Ireland has 
always had a lot of support from London financially, and so that 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 has has helped them weather the, the COVID economic challenges. Yeah. And then yeah. um, the Irish Republic has uh, luckily been able to maintain that massive international investment that buoyed the country during the Celtic Tiger. It sustained the country during the uh, devastating 08 crash, given that mm-hmm. Ireland had a bigger property bubble than nearly any other country in the world. And so while the fortunes of the homeowners and a lot of individuals uh, was dramatically impacted by the 08 crash, uh, the, the country actually has, has come back from that very, very well, in part because of the uh, presence of American multinationals and international multinationals in Ireland, um, particularly in the tech sector. So all the Viagra in the world is made in Cork in, by Pfizer. Uh, so pharmaceutical companies and companies like Intel, Microsoft uh, are, are huge employers in the state. And then, of course, we're a somewhat quirky uh, offshore financial center where many of the Googles of the world are headquartered in Europe, in Dublin, uh, in order to uh, take advantage of the fact that we speak English, we have a decent workforce, uh, but more importantly, we have a very, very unique and advantageous tax position. All of that has enabled the South to weather, I think, COVID pretty well. And um, and I think that has given Northern Ireland citizens, unionists and nationalists, uh, comfort that the South is not the traditional drain economically that it had been until the 80s. Uh, which which actually alarmed a lot of nationalists and unionists in Northern Ireland about the prospect of United Ireland being, uh, you know, uh, economically disjointed. Uh, but I think now the South is probably uh, on balance economically more successful in Northern Ireland. But Northern Ireland is doing is is doing is doing pretty well. It's always buffeted a little bit by its uh, support from London. And we talk about, when you talk about Ireland, you talk about immigration. And for years, there was a, what they called the brain drain there. The young, the, the youths who got some education, they left for other countries. Are they staying now? You know, they are. In, in fact, after 08, the, the, there was a exodus from Ireland, but it actually was an exodus of a lot of immigrants from Europe. The, the free flow of people and capital in Europe means there are a lot more diverse faces and and uh, cultures in, if anybody's recently visited Ireland, they know that the, a lot of the wait staff in hotels and bars and restaurants are not from uh, Ireland. They're actually from other parts of the European Union. And of course, a huge amount of the construction and labor in Ireland was during the building boom was done by Polish people who have a strong affinity with Ireland. When after away they left. And so the population did drop. Uh, but it, it actually much less so uh, Irish people leaving. I will also say, Jerry, that in the last few years, it has become very difficult for Irish people to emigrate to the United States. And you can tell uh, the, by the, just the, the sheer lack of Irish bars opening in Boston or, or New York and, and the lack of Irish, young Irish folks continuing to flow through those traditional parts of of Queens and in Boston, up in Brighton, you don't see that anymore. And it's partly because the United States has just become too difficult to enter. So those uh, who leave Ireland for some professional development uh, tend to go to Canada and Australia now. And of course, there's a 
greater flow around the European Union as well. And you were mentioning uh, the, the immigration of the Polish immigration in Ireland, and I know that's been been uh, uh, very much talked about. And uh, you tell me about the affinity of Poland to Ireland. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I think that there's a, you know, they are a, um, uh, a community-oriented, uh, you know, white Catholics. They 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 blend in quite well, and and uh, I, I know that many Irish people have uh, married Polish immigrants who, you know, Poland and Ireland are so close in many ways. We often look at these disparate countries in Europe as being far away from each other. But really, it's like uh, it would be a shorter distance than, you know, Ohio to, to, to Baltimore. So uh, folks are a little more migrant uh, in Poland to Ireland than they are completely transforming their lives and moving permanently. But many came and many stayed, and and uh, I think they fit in quite well with uh, with the Irish community. There's a lot of folks have uh, settled down and married and, and are now kind of permanent there. But we also saw in those years a tremendous influx of folks from all over Europe and all over the world. There are, there are towns in Ireland where a, a tremendous amount of the people are from Brazil, uh, where, you know, every house is flying a Brazilian flag. These things are new developments uh, that uh, I wasn't used to seeing growing up, but it's a sign of Ireland's prosperity, its place in the international community, and the free flow of people around the European Union as well. So we're going to see a lot of old Mikowskis out there. Huh? We're going to see old Mikowski, you know. Just, uh, but uh, you were talking a little bit about uh, President Clinton um, and his impact on the peace process. We have Joe Biden coming in now, Democrat. Um, he has a lot on his plate right now. But do you see any change in the policy towards Ireland or Northern Ireland under the uh, Biden administration? Yes. Oh, I, I think that I think that Joe Biden has already sent a very strong signal that uh, that the United Kingdom needs to honor its international agreements, and I think there was a strong sense in Dublin that Trump would easily give away, you know, the farm to Boris Johnson, but uh, Joe Biden was strong on the campaign trail, and since he's been elected in saying that the United States absolutely expects the United Kingdom to live up to its international agreements when it comes to that border. Uh, that has very, very, very powerful and strong impact on the relationship and on the outcome. Johnson reassured Biden that he would honor the agreement, I think in a way that uh, well, would never would have happened under Trump. Trump never would have said it. Johnson wouldn't have paid any attention to it. So. Uh, a really, really great timing. And, uh, you know, Biden himself, very familiar with Ireland, uh, uh, came home to uh, his ancestral stomping grounds a couple of years ago uh, and and uh, hugely popular and welcome in Ireland. A great fit. And uh, somebody I think that's going to visit Ireland soon is going to welcome people from Ireland and their and their issues and their views into the White House and into the administration. I think there's a strong sense that uh, the visa programs that Ireland desperately needs, like Australia has, uh, I think uh, are, are up for discussion in a way that they haven't been up for years. That's great. And what should folks watch uh, heading into the St. Patrick's Day this year? You know, uh, it's funny. This year uh, uh, we saw a big Hollywood film uh, made in Ireland this year. Um, and its name has gone out of my head. What's that one called? 
time. What was that one called? It 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 had a, a, a strange uh, Irish father played by Christopher Walken, who who I think uh, uh, Wild Mountain Time. Do you remember that? Uh, actually, it was pretty good and kind yeah. of fun. And I yeah. think a lot of Hollywood stars in it. I uh-huh, think folks uh-huh. would enjoy that if they want a little bit of the uh, fun in the Quiet Man vein. Of course, yes. it's always the right time to catch up with the Quiet Man. But oh, uh, yes. we start talking about politics. And I got to say, uh, some American viewers may look to uh, a big Hollywood movie called Michael Collins to get a grasp on history. Let me tell you, I was confused about Irish history after watching it. You want to watch The Wind That Shakes the Barley. That's the movie you want to watch. It's absolutely fantastic. It's easy to understand and follow. Uh, I think Killian Murphy's in it, who everybody loves from uh, Peaky Blinders. And so it you'll come away entertained and with a very good grasp of what happened in 1916 to through the Civil War in Ireland. And I recommend it highly. The wind that shakes the barley. That even sounds Irish. Very lyrical. Very, uh, very literature. Uh, going forward, what would you like to see uh, happening in uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and what do you think will happen? I think that they'll get back on track once, uh, once, once, once COVID settles down. Uh, once Brexit becomes, I mean, it is still unclear what the Brexit. Uh, long-term implications are for Britain and for Northern Ireland. It's still very, very unclear. I will say it, it is, um, <clears throat> ironically, after the Good Friday Agreement and after everything that came after it, um, I thought relations between Ireland and Britain were quite good. If you can imagine the tensions that existed between Ireland and Britain in the 70s and in the 80s, bombings in London, etc. cetera, uh, through all of that, the ordinary people in Ireland had a uh, benign view of Britain and, and, and felt warmly towards a lot of people who lived in Britain and, and uh, who they knew, they were relatives, they traveled there. Relations between Ireland and Britain have probably been worse than they were through that whole three decades. Wow, that's saying something. During yeah. Brexit. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it showed a, just a disregard for the people in Northern Ireland and for Ireland um, and and a, in, a, in a bizarre, high-handed way that really frustrated and alienated people in Ireland. And it also exposed a lot of condescension uh, and, and a failure to grasp by the British government that Ireland has found its place within Europe and is confident and secure. And it was very interesting to see the Europeans stand up for Ireland when it came to the issues that Ireland had as a result of Brexit. And it showed how embedded within the European Union uh, Ireland has become. And that, that's a source of strength, and I think it'll help normalize relations, put them on a footing that is fair to both both people in Northern Ireland and people in, in uh, the Irish Republic. And I think that's all for the good. It, it's a little bit rocky during the, the negotiations and Brexit, but afterwards it'll put things on a better, more equal and sustainable relationship. Uh, so it, it could be could be great for Ireland, actually, as a place where People who normally would headquarter their company in London will headquarter in Ireland or create jobs in Ireland as opposed to Britain. Uh, and, and of course, Ireland and Northern Ireland have a somewhat special zone, which w- would also enable, I think, people in Northern Ireland to say, wouldn't it be great if we were able to be part of the European Union while remaining connected to Britain? And all of that may actually uh, move forward uh, that 
conversation or sensibility about a more connected Ireland, if not a united Ireland. So lots to be positive about, lots to look forward to. And uh, uh, we're, we're going to keep very close eye on, I think, the post-Brexit reality of the relationship between Britain, Northern Ireland and, uh, and the Irish Republic. My friend, always great catching up with you, talking about Irish, going to see Irish bands as we used to do. So I wish you and your loved ones a great, happy St. Patrick's Day and appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your insight and uh, knowledge with us. Well, of course, I'll be thinking of you as I wear my shamrock, Jerry. All righty. You Thank you, Colm. You too. Bye. And I want to bring in my technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods. And how are you, Brad? I am uh, excellent, sir. We're enjoying a, a bit of a warm spell in New Jersey. So. Oh, my goodness. Good for you. So I won't tell you it's 72 and sunny in St. Pete. I wouldn't do that to you, pal. Hey, um, you and I were talking a little bit, and you were telling me about this uh, interesting Irish story you had going to a festival. So tell me about that again. You know, uh well, it's, you know, it's funny, St. Patrick's Day is coming, and uh, many years ago when I first moved to New York City, so this is about 2003, and I think they still do this in New York, like every Saturday and Sunday in one of the neighborhoods in Manhattan, they'll close 10 blocks and do like a little street fair, and uh, it's like a little art festival, you know, people are selling stuff they made or antiques or things like that, and there's tons of food, Um and there was a guy who I haven't seen at one of these festivals in years, but he used to sell antique signs from like the turn of the century. Um, and I remember going through them all and it was just like, you know, silly, like mustache wax. Like crazy old cigar <laughs> right. products, you know, and yes, stuff like yes, that. Yes. And one wow. of the signs was a beautifully framed under glass help wanted Irish need not apply. And, and it's one of those things, like it was just so wrong without a second hesitation. I'm like, well, I got to have this and I'm not even Irish, nor nor do I, I hate the Irish or every prejudice against them. It just seemed so wrong that I I had to have it. And it hung over the exit or the in and out door of my apartment for, for years, at least 10 years. It was always at the front door of my house. And, um, you know, it was always a, it was a conversation piece. Yes, and a reminder at how how awful our country could be at times. And it's so funny you mentioned that sign because I was in Albany maybe about two years ago, and there was a little Irish museum that popped up there, and I went in just because I had some time. And and uh, it was mostly focused on how the Irish built the Erie Canal, but one of those signs was in there, Irish need not apply. And it just kind of struck me. I grew up in an Irish-American neighborhood, half Irish, the whole bit. And uh, it just struck me because it just reminded me that you know, in 1850s and 1860s, it was the Irish who were persecuted. In the 1920s, it was the Italians. But today, it's the Hispanics who are going through that. And I think uh, the Latinos. And I think when I think about it, and I remember saying this to my to my Irish friends on St. Patrick's Day, saying, hey, we were them. And they are us. And, you know, we we should understand what they're going through right now because because um, we've been there. Yeah, no, I. I agree. And it's, uh, you know, it's a testament of, of the countries that they're, you know, essentially trying to escape from. I mean, in, in this day and age, people sh- that, that shouldn't be trying to escape from their country. And, yeah. and, and, and that's, you know, I, I think the, the, the key to, to fixing a lot of problems in this world is, is making uh, or helping other countries establish 
stable governments, uh, right. especially, right. you know, you, you, you read all these horror stories of people escaping South America, escaping. That's, can you imagine if we had to escape our homes oh my gosh, and go somewhere imagine. to another country and try and scrape by? Imagine. No, it's no. It's, and I, I've actually been to constant, you know, I've been to citizenship uh, um, ceremonies and that's a powerful ceremony. When you see somebody taking an oath to another country, giving up their citizenship of their homeland. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, that'd be hard. Like you say, it'd be hard for me to be standing in, you know, Russia saying, uh, you know, I'm going to be a Russian citizen. Uh, just be, just be a horrible kind of thing so uh and joe biden right now he's got he's got his hands full i mean there, there's so many people coming to the border wanting to get in and there's you know so he's really um he's really in a tough spot right now and it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see um how that all shakes out um i agree and it's it's funny to see that you know now it's literally the shoe is on the other foot and he's getting called out for being inhumane and not handling the the situation on the border uh, properly, yeah. which is, uh, it's, it's going to continue to be a problem until, like I said, people are trying not to escape somewhere. Yeah. Sadness. Thank you, pal. Always good chatting with you. I appreciate all your uh, help this week. And, uh, well, you know, I, we, 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 I, I don't want to, yeah, I was going to say happy St. Patrick's day. And I don't, I don't want to end on a downer. That's my awful. <laughs> Irish. Here's, here's my uh, St. Patrick's day dad joke. Are you ready for Uh-oh. it? All right. Let's end on a, on a, let's end on a high note. What's Irish and stays out all night. Oh my goodness. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> Go ahead. Patio furniture. Oh! <laughs> you're right, pal. That is a good way. To end that, it. You know that one. That one hey. always kills when you're driving a group yes, of kids to yes, school. Yes. <laughs> Uh, don't forget to tip the waiters and waitresses, right? I want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad Baby, the Wizard of Pods, our announcer, Dave, our contributing voice talent, John. One Take Turns is the voiceover, Tampa Bay. I want to give a shout-out also to Barrage Das, who handles the United States News Facebook page. He has over 300,000 members. So go ahead and join that if you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening in the nation. And we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.